Hello and welcome to a special episode of uh, CityWire Selectors Japan Forecast. Uh, today in this episode I'm speaking with Nicholas Wendling, a country specialist overseeing Japan equities for JP Morgan. Um, Nicholas has been based in Japan for 16 years and in this conversation he explains where the current opportunities in Japan are now in his mind and he also mentions some unusual um, opportunities that actually spring out of quite serious labor market issues that could put a lot of investors off, such as something I'd never heard of myself, uh, succession matchmaking. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's important to be based here for a couple of reasons, actually. One is that Japan's quite an, an interesting stock market in that the majority of companies, and the, I mean, there's like 4,000 listed companies in Japan, but half of them have zero or one analyst from an investment bank writing about them. So it's a very, very poorly covered market. Ah, this and is the third party public... sell side research side of things. Exactly. That okay. Exactly. And even if you go slightly up the market cap spectrum, you know, companies with a market cap of over $10 million or so, even there, you know, 70% of Japanese companies will have three or fewer analysts looking at them, um, third-party research. Um, and that equivalent figure would be, you know, like, you know, be dramatically lower in Europe and the United States. So, you know, it's a very kind of uh, undiscovered right market saying, still. There's... Am I right in saying that around, is this, is this, is this figure around, like, say, over 70% are not covered by third-party sell-side research providers compared to, say, the US, where the same figure is covered by three or more analysts. Is, is that about right, or am I, am I off there? Um, I think it's, if, if you're looking at market cap over $10 million, 70% of companies have three or fewer analysts in Japan, and, yeah, and wow. as you say, exactly for the US. But if you take the whole market, actually half of companies have zero or one analyst covering. So, you know, once you start to go even smaller, like, they, you know, there's many, many companies which have no coverage um, at all. Okay. Um, so that's one important thing about being based here. And we obviously being here, it's very easy for us to meet any company. We meet all, can meet all the companies at IPO, you know, when they first come to the market. Also, and I never expected this to can be I, an advantage. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Um, so what, what, does, what advantage does that pose, you know, for an active fund manager like yourself, you know, to, to have that lack of coverage? How do you leverage that? Um, well, if there's no or very little coverage, it means that, um, you know, you have to do a lot of the work um, yourself. Um, and sure. we've got a team of over 20 people, which is a very, very big team. Um, you know, by any standards, looking at Japan only, you know, fund managers and dedicated analysts, you need to have a resource to do that. But as long as you've got that resource, um, then it may, can lead to big inefficiencies. You know, people just don't know what's going on at these companies. And just by the mere fact that you're meeting them and looking at them and find looking at their earnings on just just this quite simple thing is already um, a very big, um, a very big advantage. One thing that I never expected to be an advantage about being here or just interesting about being here is that in the last, what's coming up for three years now, is that if you don't live in Japan, you've not been able to get to Japan. Like it's been very, very difficult with COVID to sure. 
of getting course. that. And so, you know, everyone thinks about Japan. They a lot of people might remember. You know, there were a lot of COVID cases on a cruise ship right at the beginning of the pandemic in Japan. Oh, that yes. was in Yokohama. So people remember that. And people also think about the Olympics, which obviously in Tokyo, and everyone could see those empty stadiums. But apart from that, Japan's not really been in the news at all, and、um, so it's quite easy to just, you know, it's a bit out of sight, out of mind. And so it's been much, been very, very helpful just to know what's going on here because you know I'm living and breathing as the rest of the team are every day. Can I ask? So how long? You may have said this before. How long have you been based in Japan for? I've been here for the last sixteen years.、Um, So it's getting, you know, it's it's pretty long. I worked two years another time in Japan, just in the very far north, in the North Island of Hokkaido,、um, very close to Russia, actually. Which lots of people don't realize how close Japan and Russia are.、Um, mm. But um, so totally eighteen、um, years in, in Japan. It's funny, actually, just to, on your point, actually, about the the geography.、Um, is it? Am I right in saying that after COVID, there's been sort of a unprecedented migration of companies? Kind of for the first time, moving out of Tokyo,、um, and, and and if this is true, what what kind of impact is that is that happening for? And I suppose specifically for maybe small cap、um, equity managers. Yeah, there have been a couple of examples of that happening, but I would be a bit reluctant to draw any big conclusion about it. I think it's more interesting, maybe that. Companies and Japanese companies traditionally been quite rigid in their employment practices, but we do see more adoption of flexible working or working from home, and these things are, are you know Japan is often behind other. There's lots of trends all over the world, but I'd say Japan is behind the global trend, and that is particularly one. So that flexibility is very good. So if you look at some of the peculiarities of Japan, or maybe even frustrations, you might think that. You can look at very low percentage of, or relatively low percentage of women in the workforce, or certainly in senior positions. There's, you know, that you see a big、um, lack of, of women in those roles, and the fact that we've now you've done more flexible working and more working from home, then hopefully it can start to kind of、uh, redress that balance because、um, it's a bit of a Japan has lots of labour market issues. I mean, the number one, and it's always kind of the elephant in the room in Japan, is the population is falling. So the, the this is the ageing population. Exactly. So the number of people in Japan right now is about 127 million people, but by 2050 it will be around 90, 95 million. So it's quite a fast rate of population decline. Now. Lots of countries have this issue. This is not a Japan-specific issue, like China, Thailand, Scandinavia, Italy. But Japan has this issue first,、um, and so you know that creates lots of interesting opportunities. It's obviously bad news for end demand for quite a lot of companies, but there are some some certain companies for which really benefit. And ultimately, you know, we've got four thousand companies to choose from. We invest in fifty. You know, we we can find companies that benefit from these very Very clear structural trends, and you know you can be as specific or non-specific as you know you you can be. What 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 are the areas and the sectors that are benefiting from this, and and how do you see that evolving in the you know the the kind of the the medium to long term?、Um, well, some examples would be if you look at Japanese small unlisted companies,、um, there are you know around half a million 
small Japanese companies where you know the owners are getting older and older and they don't have any successor. They've got literally nobody to take over that business. Um, and there there are companies who you know kind of help them to solve that problem like help matchmake basically set up this small company with an issue with a larger company is looking to consolidate and the biggest companies who help with that they might do a thousand deals a year but when you consider there's half a million companies with this problem you know that can create a lot of opportunity um you know when we think about ways to solve that or what japan can do about this aging population issue one of the things and there's a very different attitude towards this in japan as opposed for example in europe but you know you can automate a lot of processes or use robotics now my perception is in europe people are quite wary about that and that robots take people's jobs away but in japan it's obviously a big solution because there's not enough people to do this work and it can make things very much more efficient. So it's quite a difficult, different attitude. And we can find lots of, we're very fortunate in Japan to have really the world's leading robotic and automation companies are almost all Japanese. So, you know, you can see very specific examples of areas where you can see benefit. That's so interesting. So I suppose what, what I'm taking from that is that there's opportunities and essentially a kind of a, corporate inheritance uh, matchmaking services and automation are so benefits and opportunities that are coming out of what could be seen as an outsider um, with little knowledge of the, the region as quite big opportunities. I wanted to ask you just over the 16 years, you know, just to your point before when you were talking about certain you know, frustrations and obstacles in, in, in operating in that market. What have the main, aging population aside, what have the main sort of obstacles and frustrations been, you know, for active managers working um, in Japan? And, and, and how have they kind of changed and, and shifted over, over that time in your mind? Um, well, by far and away, the most important thing from a market perspective and a shareholder perspective is there has been and I don't think it's any stretch to say that there is a shareholder return revolution going on in Japan. Like attitudes to corporate governance are changing dramatically. Um, that process started in about 2014 when the government introduced a corporate governance code and a stewardship code, but the momentum has really built. Um, and just as an example, in the most recent results season we had in Japan, we saw share buybacks from companies were up 65% against last year. And last year was a record year. And this is going to continue because Japanese companies have incredibly strong balance sheets. Like over 50% of non-financial companies in Japan have net cash balance sheets. This is dramatically higher than the US and Europe. In the US and Europe, it's about 15 to 20% of companies. And they're just really embarking on this shareholder return, they're starting to think about how to manage their balance sheets. Um, you know, when I started my career, I was embarrassed to talk about shareholder returns from Japanese companies. And it's just not the case. I mean, Japan has much, much better shareholder returns, dividend yields and buybacks as well. And importantly, we're at a very early stage in this story. And I expect that it will play out over the next five, 10 years and beyond. So for me, this is by far 
way the most interesting thing from a market perspective that's going on mm-hmm. in a slightly different level a kind of personal level about things that I you can notice changing here from living here is that um and this is slightly affected by COVID but at least up until 2019 um you never used to see many foreigners in Japan you certainly never saw foreign tourists in Japan the data is specific is that in 2012 8 million tourists came to Japan in 2019 that hit 32 million so it was a very dramatic increase and there was a government policy which helped that where some visa restrictions were changed and that was that was extremely visible on the streets of it doesn't matter with Tokyo or Osaka or you go skiing or any of these things it's really noticeable and not only that you also start to see more and more foreigners working in stores like you go to a convenience store about the one right next to my house um, where we live all of the staff are non-Japanese. Um, you would not have seen that um, 10 years ago. That is a very big shift. And that, that feels kind quite, of got hit. Yeah, that feels quite significant. Sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all been hit a bit by COVID, but, you know, assuming we can all get back to normal, then I would. there's no reason why we wouldn't go back to all of these things happening again. And that's a, that's a very visible shift. I mean, the most visible shift that I've seen in Japan in the whole length of time I've been here. So that um, kind of that shift in in working, you know, the corporate governance, um, the um, employment demographic, uh, just kind of following on from your points about the corporate reforms, by which, from what you're saying, are being, you know, adopted. It's not just kind of a, a box ticking exercise from 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 what you're saying. Also, is Japan now kind of got moving looking more outward i suppose um is japan now sort of is there a greater integration with broader asia um and i suppose if this is if this is true um you know could you talk me through the significance of this well i mean japan you know is fortunate in some ways to be very close to some very big end markets such as obviously china um, and ASEAN, so Southeast Asia, I mean, they're just very physically close. So in that respect, yes, um, you know, there can be demand, can be demand for Japanese products. Um, you know, I mentioned this already a little bit, but, you know, one of the big trends in China has been the, the cost of labor has been going up. And so, you know, China has been the workshop of the world, but as the labor cost goes up, companies have thought twice about you know, okay, is it so good to produce them? One of the things they can do is automate production. And again, you know, automation tends to equal Japan. It's so strong in that area. But there's other things as well, like Japan, um, a lot of Japanese products, you know, they are thought of as being high quality, very reliable, um, very safe. And a lot of Japanese companies that's helped them in their kind of expansion um, across the rest of Asia. There's no reason why it should be limited to Asia. I mean, to bring it back to big topics in the world at the moment, if you think about inflation and labor costs rising in the US or in Europe, you know, you can see that. You can see Amazon workers' um, wages going up 10, 15, 20%. Now, what is Amazon going to do about that problem? Well, one of the things they do is pay workers more. But the other thing is automate their warehouses. Um, and so you see something which was quite Asia, you saw a lot in Asia, and now spreading across 
um, the US and Europe, you know, if companies move their production, I mean, there's been examples, for example, Adidas uh, moved some production back to Germany. Um, and when they do that, they need to think about how to make it efficient to do it. And, you know, because clearly German workers are more expensive than workers maybe in Asia. So one of the major things to consider is, again, automation. And, you know, we, so it's not really just about the potential growth in Asia. Um, it's, yeah. Okay. And I, I was kind of curious as well about the, the and this might tie into the, 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 the you know, the corporate governance reforms that you, you mentioned um, before. But whenever I think of Japan, um, I, I, you know, I do think about, you know, that kind of quite extreme work culture, you know, the kind of the, the, you know, the, the, the job for life, the man that, you know, he commits to working, you know, 16 hours a day, um, but with the understanding that it's a, you know, it's a job for life. And it, and it always seems from the corporate side of things, um, like quite an extreme work culture. Is this something that still exists today? Is this something that you're seeing evolve? And, and how does that impact I suppose the work that you do with these companies, or does it have an impact? I mean, it is true that many people, you know, that job for life or staying with the same company, that is something that we still see in Japan, although, you know, it is changing over time. You know, I think that, you know, Japan, I say, is putting maybe more emphasis on, you know, corporate governance and return to shareholders, but it has this very clear kind of social contract with employees and how companies fit in society and i think in some ways the west is also starting to think about that about how they treat employees and maybe the west might edge a little bit towards the japan model at the same time japan edges a little bit towards um the western model but i'm always um a little bit um dubious about saying oh japan is different or this is going to work differently in japan oh it's very you know oh it's in the other side of the world and aren't things you know a bit weird there um and i basically think that all of the things we see in the rest of the world will happen in japan in fact one of the big opportunities here is that they will happen here but with a time lag um i mean to give you an example um i did my first trip to europe for two and a half years, a couple of weeks, to, a couple of weeks ago. And it's actually quite difficult to spend cash in Europe. Like there's lots of, you go for a cup of coffee and it's like cashless only, or you, you can't, or you go, you know, it's only self-service checkouts and so on. Sure, sure. Contrast that to here. Like I was on the, we were on the motorway coming back from Nagano, which is a town in the mountains here to Tokyo at the weekend, stopped at a service station. There's a big sign up that says cash only. Um, and in Japan still, 70% 70, 70 of transactions roughly are done in cash. Now it's changing and it is you know, getting, you know, starting to move away from that, but it's, but it's happening with a time lag. You see it in lots of areas. If you look at e-commerce, online shopping in Japan, it's still, even after the pandemic, only about 11% of total retail sales, which, you know, it's been growing, but as it's dramatically lower, than what you would see in the US, Europe, certainly China and Korea. Um, so people often have this image of Japan as being ultra high tech and advanced, but actually in many of these areas, it's quite far behind. And that throws up incredible opportunities for investing ah. because 
I we... would think the same. Yeah, whenever I think of Japan, I think of the bright lights of Tokyo um, right. and this completely um, sort of almost, you know, tech futuristic utopia. So you're, you're actually saying that it's actually quite a big opportunity from the tech side, more than people would think. Yeah, I think it's an incredible opportunity. People have that image. I mean, like you say, of like there's a there's a crossing, a road crossing in Shibuya, which is like That's exactly what I'm zebra crossings, of. and there's, <laughs> there's neon lights everywhere. I mean, yes. my kids go to school very close to that, and um, I mean, it is. It, it feels like you know, it, it does feel very futuristic. <laughs> but at the same time, like you know, when I you know I paid a tax bill recently, and I had to pay it with physical cash like I couldn't make an online transfer I mean that's very far behind when you think about the aging population um you know Japanese companies must change become more efficient they must switch their software like lots of them use an internally developed software solution which they need internal engineers well those engineers are all about to retire it's just not sustainable to do that and they need to become more efficient and we can see overseas exactly how this works and all these things are almost certain to happen here because of this population issue that the workers are just not going to be around. So companies must switch to having more efficient software and being able to process, like, you know, we um, in Japan up until, I mean, still, when you sign a document, most people don't use electronic signatures, um, which is, you know, become very prevalent in Europe and the US. You know, you need to have a physical ink stamp now that is just starting to change, um, but you know, it's tremendously inefficient. This it's is so funny. interesting to me. This is, this is actually quite, quite new. Um, this, is, this is news to me. I, I had that really sort of, and I'll admit it, quite kind of cliched image of, of Japan. So from, from what you're saying, there's almost kind of a real, very, it is an economic urgency with this um with the need for um the adoption of tech in like very essential parts of life and i'm just wondering if you could sort of give examples about you know from through through you know small cap through to the larger cap opportunities about you know where what kind of sectors you know you you see these opportunities across the entire you know um economic spectrum if you will yeah, well, in um, domestic Japan, you know, we look at things like accounting, quite simple things like accounting software or cloud accounting software. Now, that is used by 50, 60 percent of especially smaller companies in, in the West, but only around 20 percent of Japanese companies have done that. I mean, that's a very clear 20 percent. Yeah, 20. Wow. So it's a very long growth runway that we look at there cashless payments i mentioned you know we still see very high uh, very very you know people people walk around with it's not unusual to carry 500 dollars in your wallet here um japan's a very very safe country and also you need to carry cash you know because some places just don't accept cards or other cash other forms of payment um so there's a big domestic opportunities like if you look in things like it's a very unconsolidated market if you look in I mean, the US or the UK at drugstores or chemist market, the top two companies in those countries have around 75% market share. Um, but in Japan, the top 10 have 60% market share. So you'll see tremendous opportunity for consolidation within that top 10. But also, importantly, there's 40%, which is unlisted SMEs. And it's just not sustainable. It's not efficient to keep going like this. 
Um, and that will change. And it's very good to have that visibility. And I always think that, you know, we have a great team of you know, global analysts and, you know, they're constantly, and I know what's going on in the UK, US, Germany, and so on. And um, it's like, you know, we're watching a movie, but they're, all my colleagues are halfway through the movie, but we're just at the very beginning here. And mm. the same things are going to happen. E-commerce is another example. But these are all domestic examples, right? And um, I think that, you know, also when people think about Japan, like what does investing in Japan mean? They tend to think of things like cars and consumer electronics. And these were things Japan was very, very strong at um, 20 years ago. And I think there are very strong companies in Japan and ones that are selling overseas, but they're not those household names. They're in different areas. And Japan has incredibly strong brands, um, but they're not the ones people think of. So if you think of like, the global number one company in bicycle parts um, with 75, 80% market share, that's Japanese. Um, and, you know, you can see more people are cycling um, and it's, you know, because it's healthier, it's more environmentally friendly, but you need to get components from this Japanese company. And you have a very, very strong niche for that type of business. Um, or if you look at things like, um, you know, intellectual property, like in, in things like computer games, you know, Japanese companies have some of the strongest intellectual property, probably of any companies in the world. And the important thing, it doesn't matter whether, you know, you're watching this content, you know, when you play a computer game or a net, when you watch on Netflix or when you go to a theme park. And we don't know who will win, like with a different sure. gaming platform. But what we, what we know is that you need powerful content intellectual property um you know with, and you know that could be something like you know mario or pokemon like you know this is incredibly powerful yeah and fantastic um monetization opportunity for those companies that's so interesting i was going to say and not to put you on the spot but uh, when you look at you know certain japanese stocks over a 10-year period you could say that they've and you know, and you can you can tell me if I'm right or wrong here. They've posted similar, you know, um, I suppose marks over a ten year period to say, you know, frontier markets. So if you if you if you were you know you were sat down with someone um, and you were saying you know you should put your money in Japan as opposed to say like you know Pakistan or Bangladesh, what what would be the kind of your your key um, you know advice and what's the kind of the a, a differentiator if someone's looking at just purely from the ten year you know period of returns um i suppose why japan and why right now well the first thing is japan has a very stable um is a you know it's a stable um democracy and rule of law is very enshrined here we don't have to worry about sudden change in policies you know sudden change in regulation we've seen that happen not just in um, emerging markets, but actually some developed markets have been very significant changes in the political environment in the last few years. And Japan just hasn't seen that at all. It's a very good, stable backdrop with which to invest. The second thing is that there is this corporate governance revolution, which I think is incredibly powerful and will play out over many years. Um, and the third thing is, and I would always say, and I'll caveat this by saying I'm an active fund manager. Like, of course, I'm going to say mm -hmm. active funds are the way to go. But, you know, I think that there is a huge, the huge number of companies in Japan and some of them have major issues. 
Um, they are making products which are in structural decline. Um, we know the population's falling. Um, and we, and I see my job as a fund manager, it's very important to, to not invest in these companies. Like, I'm not going to say to people, yes, invest in all Japan, Japanese companies. I think there is a group of companies with great long-term prospects. Um, we must invest here. And, um, and we should ignore the rest. And, and that is why I feel like very privileged to run an unconstrained portfolio where I can just pick the very best ideas. And these, the fact that these are, com- these are companies which happen to be listed in Japan, right? If they were listed somewhere else, they would still be extremely attractive. You know, they've got global top market shares with really high growth rates, um, with really high barriers to entry and competitive advantages. The fact that they're Japanese is kind of neither here nor there. It's just that they may be a discount in the valuation because people have some preconception about investing in in Japan. That is fascinating. Um, do you know what? I think uh, you've uh, left that on a, on a very uh, strong note to end things on. So, uh, Nicholas, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.